millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. David Trimble was one of the key architects of the Belfast Agreement. His role led to him winning a Nobel Peace Prize. It's also for everybody in Northern Ireland, and I think everybody in Northern Ireland will take pleasure in the award to John Hume and myself as something that signifies the change, the great change there has been in the course of this year. He had unexpectedly won the UUP party leadership in 1995, having been elected following the Drum Cree dispute. I therefore give you your new leader, Mr David Trimble. Very, very deeply conscious of the honour and the privilege and the duty and the responsibility you've placed David Trimble died in July 2022. But in this bonus episode of The Bell Tale, we broadcast a remarkable in-depth interview from 2015 in which David Trimble gives his take on what happened during the peace process to Alex Kane. Joining me now is um, Lord Trimble, former leader of the Ulster Unionist Party and former First Minister of Northern Ireland. Uh, when Jim Molyneux stood down in August 1905, um, you were barely even mentioned as a, as a potential candidate, with most pundits saying it was, going to be, it was a fight between John Taylor and Ken McGuinness. Um, what made you decide at that point to throw your hat in the ring? What, was it the drum cree factor, some people say, or was, or was it something wider than that? No, no, it wasn't. Um, I, it was obvious that, that Jim was going to step down at some point. Uh, I mean, go into the reasons behind that, but it, it was obvious that was going to happen. Um, now, I, at that time, um, shared an office in London with, with John Taylor. Uh, shared it with him on the basis that I was the only member of the Parliamentary Party prepared to share a room with him. <laughs> but John and I always got on well together, and I'd actually been his election agent when he first got elected to the European Parliament. So I was, I was coming, I, mean, I knew John's way of working. Uh, I was accustomed to his uh, rather unusual sense of humour, which is what everybody else complained about. Yeah. <laughs> I'm aware of that humour, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I, it, it seemed to me that John had a good chance of becoming leader. And I was quite comfortable with that because I respected his judgement, uh, which was good. People complained about him. Uh, you know, not being there all the time, and that was partly because he had so many other interests, which took him away from time to time. But his judgment politically was very good, uh, and so I was comfortable with that as well. And it also caught me. We never mentioned this, but I assumed to myself, well, who's going to be his chief whip? You know, because mm-hmm. you're going to have to have somebody that 
he, he gets on well with. And I thought to myself, there's a really good chance I'll become chief whip, and that will put me in a very nice position where I'll know what's going on and be involved in it without actually having uh, the, the responsibility for it. You know? uh, and that was in my mind when I, I wandered down, I think, and it was on down the road here, down Bow Street, uh, into to buy a newspaper, standing there, getting my paper and all the rest of it. And a lady I knew who was a, an active member of the party in uh, Lagan Valley came up and uh, what was this she hears about me not standing and when I was saying well, we, we, were, we, were, we were depending on you to stand uh-huh. uh, and I got that in the course of the day from a couple of other people as well and the people who, who were saying that to me uh, were you know in terms of the, their, their, their membership, the thing that comes to my mind is the middle stand. Uh, they, they were the sort of core bedrock of the party uh, and the people who did a lot of the work within it. They, they weren't that young, they weren't uh-huh. that old, uh, uh, but they were the, the activists. And uh, I then decided, right, I'm going to have to put my hat in the ring. And then... Uh, Said, said we're going to do this, we'd do it seriously. Uh, that I would start uh, getting a list of the uh, delegates and we would do a telephone canvas of uh, all the delegates. I, I didn't do it so much myself, it was done in my office, uh, constituency office, in Lurgan uh, by the staff were there, but by other people who are, were actually volunteering there. Their, and after the first got there too, I kept saying to him, you know, was, when they were telling me what the results they were getting, I said, it can't be right. <laughs> it just can't be right. You know? Uh, well, there you are. Well, interesting, I remember Gordon Lucy telling me um, the day it was announced that you were standing, uh-huh. and I expressed some surprise, not that you were standing, but saying, given the fact that your profile wasn't, wasn't anywhere near uh, as high as was the beginning, as he said to me, no, if David stands, David will win. That the party wants something different. Have you any concept at the time, or even looking back, what that something different was the party wanted? What was your? I mean, in essence, what was your general impression of the Ulster Unionist Party at that time? Somebody said to me afterwards, uh, after the meeting, that uh, the other contenders contented themselves with saying what great chaps they were mm-hmm. and <laughs> what they'd done over the rest of it. Whereas I gave a political speech referring to the the, the issues that we're going to be confronted with and the mm-hmm. decisions we're going to have to make. And I did actually, in the course of that, saying at some point we're going to have to get into. I think there's, there's going to be the question of whether we get involved in inter-party talks, and that's going to be one of the most crucial decisions we're going to have to, uh, to make. And I counted also the, the, the line too that uh, you know I, I will go, what have you, uh, you know, defending the union, selling the union party's position. I will go anywhere for that. And I said that deliberately because I saw the way Molyneux got himself into a, a, a straight jag of saying, no, no, I'm, I won't go to Dublin, I won't do this, I won't do that. And I, I just want to be free of all of that. Mm-hmm. And I think those are two of the factors. Um, Drum Cree was there in the background. Mm-hmm. Um, not necessarily a good factor because the bulk of the party disapproves of getting in trouble mm-hmm. and the bulk of the party disapproves of, of people working closely with Ian Paisley. Mm-hmm. So there was that sense, but I think there was also the sense, because I remember afterwards about when we had these occasions in the past, you know, what leading members of the party did, and I was told that, well, actually, most of them kept away from their telephone mm-hmm. or contented themselves with, with just issuing general statements and all the rest of it. Whereas when I found that suddenly on my lap, I didn't run away from it. Mm-hmm. 
So what were you, when you were elected, I think it was the 8th of September, um, mm-hmm. 95, what were your, suddenly your leader, you know, maybe a month ago you wouldn't have thought that, mm-hmm. what were your very clear priorities at that moment? There, there was a political process already in existence mm-hmm. at that time. Um, and we'd had, I mean, the, the key point showing what that process was, was the Downing Street Declaration of uh, December 93, which, amongst other things, set out the terms and conditions on which uh, people who'd been previously involved in paramilitary activity could come into the political process. Uh, there are lots of other stuff, there's lots of verbiage, but that paragraph, I think it was paragraph four, that paragraph was the, the core element of it, and it laid down a series of preconditions. Mm-hmm. We'd had the, the, the IRA ceasefire. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, when that happened, a lot of people assumed, oh, a deal has been done, mm-hmm. which wasn't right. Uh, there, was a, uh, there was a plan behind the IRA ceasefire, and the plan was that of putting together a pan-nationalist front, SDLP, Republicans, Dublin, Irish America, even Wheeling and Clinton was supposed mm-hmm. to be part of this. And the object of the exercise was to, to generate enough you know, uh, influence about that to uh, compel a talks process in which would be designed in such a way as to marginalise unionism. Mm-hmm. And indeed, probably hoping that unionism would, would do its usual uh, and walk out and, you know, as if that would have made any would have had any positive effect at all. So it, it wasn't too difficult to see that that was what was lurking there in the background. Uh-huh. And it wasn't too difficult to see uh, that Paisley would never do anything positive. Uh, there'd been the talks in 92, uh, which just involved uh, Ulster Unionist, Democratic Unionist, SDLP and Alliance, and the government. And the, during those talks, we had enormous difficulty trying to get the DUP to agree to a sensible position. Uh, their preference, as their normal was, uh, to to set out an impossible situation, you know, and mm-hmm. say this is what we want, and we're not prepared, you know, to and, and they're not prepared. There's no to, way it wasn't going. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so we, we we knew that that's where they would be. Uh, after the experience in '92, none of us really expected that it would be possible to work positively with the DUP, mm-hmm. uh, and I think the DUP would have uh, did did what they wanted to do, which was not be in the talks and not have any responsibility for it, but at liberty to say whatever they liked, whenever they liked, and mm-hmm. to exploit whatever difficulties came along the way. I mean, that's... One knew that was going to be the case. One knew also that, you know, while we were engaged at that stage in bilaterals with uh, John Major as Prime Minister, uh, that we couldn't just simply stay at that point, you know, uh, what we had to do is to find some way of influencing the process or the structures of the process before it happened. Uh, I didn't quite anticipate then just how quickly things would happen. Uh, and that caused a bit of difficulty. Well, I was going to say, was that one of the difficulties? Because I mean, it must have been very difficult, I think for you personally, as well as in terms of trying to persuade the party, that one of the inevitable consequences of this talks process, if, if, if you were going to stay in it, was that at some point, either directly or indirectly, you were going to have to, what to all intents and purposes would be seen as, negotiating with Sinn Féin. I mean, how difficult was that? I think it may have been the election to the uh, forum. It was 96. 96. John Dobson, my election agent, said to me one time we were walking along, he said uh, that, fairly obvious to him, 
that sometime, some point down the line we're going to have to talk to the IRA. Mm-hmm. And he said that he thought I was the man to do it. And my reaction was <laughs> not printable. <laughs> so, uh, and that, that came over the horizon pretty quickly, you know, after 95. But was there a moment at any at that just after John had maybe said that you just said no, there are no circumstances I can imagine ever doing that, or was it more a case of well, well this, this is inevitable if there's a talks process and all these international agencies are involved, I cannot walk away from this. The uh, an important thing actually, one of my approach to it happened uh, in the ninety four uh, conference conservative conference in Bournemouth. I had started fairly early on after I got elected, going to fringe meetings at uh, party conferences, mm-hmm. initially the Conservative, but then I did the Labour one as well. And uh, in, in these ones, this, this was a typical one. I drove down myself to Bournemouth uh, with a lot of leaflets in the, in the boot mm-hmm. of the car. I had to organise the room myself. Uh, nobody else came with me to do it. To, to, sort of, it was just me alone. And I was doing it basically, well, I don't know if I actually just, well, I think I did tell people that we were doing that, and they were all happy, oh, you... Get on with it, <laughs> it's in the normal, yes. Did the meeting on, the, uh, on an evening, uh, and afterwards uh, a message came to me saying that the Prime Minister would like to have a word with you the next mo- tomorrow morning. So I went, at the point in time, uh, ushered into the room, uh, large room, desk, John Major behind the desk, nobody else there. Mm-hmm. Now, this was after this was a number of weeks after the IRA ceasefire, when the government had got uh, uh, engaged in, uh, in exchanges with them uh, because the government wasn't happy with the terms in which the ceasefire was announced. Mm-hmm. And they were talking about, is this a permanent... Does this mean the, the, the campaign is over? And all that, and, and the IRA wouldn't give a, a, a clear statement and all the rest of it. And it was getting into... It had been going on for several weeks uh, with calls for clarification of this and clarification of that and not really getting anywhere and one's feeling was that as this has changed going on it's getting more difficult the government's position is, is not improving and John Major got up and what he said to me he said if, if you were in my shoes what would you do now uh, if someone else had said to me in another place what do you think the government should do now one would roll off a whole list of things some of the things would be good ideas some not good <laughs> ideas and, and all the rest of it and I said he said he's saying if you're in my shoes what do you think I should do now mm-hmm. he's not asking me what you think a unionist would like to do what should he do now and I said I've got to give a man a sensible answer and so I said, well, I think the best thing to do is for you to say that you are proceeding on the basis that this some, this ceasefire is permanent, with a hint that if there's any backsliding on this, there'll be hell to pay for it, but you're going to proceed on this basis, and this is the basis on which we're talking, and if you talk to us, then you're talking to us on this basis too. And Major said, yes, that's what I'm going to say this afternoon. <laughs> that was handy, though. Um, no, but that, that, that sticks so clearly in my mind. As, uh, you know, I was suddenly had to look with a different framework, a different mindset mm-hmm. of what would I do if I was Prime Minister. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, gets, it wasn't then such a big shock saying, now, what do I do now that I'm party leader? Mm-hmm. Because I knew what I had to do as party leader it had to be sensible and relate to the real situation we were in rather than a situation you'd like to have. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
So it was an engagement with reality. And so I was in that mindset. Uh, It wasn't totally new to me. You actually make a huge shift in your thinking Mm -hmm. when you're doing that. Uh, And things look quite different in that situation. I remember somebody saying at the time, just after you were elected leader, and was um, very enthusiastic. And his Mm -hmm. his argument was that uh, with David, this is someone who has thought it through and realises that the the Molyneux line, I don't know who came up with the masterly inactivity, well, it may not have been doing any damage in, in terms of you know the, the vote or anything that wasn't in fact doing any good whatsoever in terms of the unionist position. So is that quite the reverse? Actually. Quite the reverse. So maybe I'm just saying that that's well, another reason for you winning. He thought that's why that Taylor and McGuinness had taken this, as you say, oh we're wonderful, blah blah blah. But nobody was actually saying, here's the reality, guys. This is what we as a party now need to be doing. Another education I had was earlier, not long after Blair became shadow Home Secretary. I got this message from Blair, could we have a meeting? And he came to the, the guts of saying that uh, one of the things he wanted to do was to change the Labour Party's position, uh, where voted against each year against the renewal of the Emergency mm-hmm. Provisions Act, uh, but that he didn't think he could do that in one whole step. And what he wanted to do was to narrow down their grounds of opposition to two or three points and then ask the government for a review of those points in the hope of getting something uh, which will then enable him the next time it comes round to move into a position of, of supporting. And he said, he mentioned what were the two or three points that he had in mind. And he said, when he looked at last year's speeches, he saw that I mentioned these points as being points which were uh, things that we were concerned about. Mm-hmm. You know, about aspects of the exclusion orders and, and, and a few other wee odds and ends. And so that's why he was asking me, you know, if I, you know, narrow down my, my areas of opposition to the things that you've said are the things that I was concerned about, could we then have a joint call for the government to look into the matter? So I said, I'll have to go and see about this. So I went and told Jim Molyneux. And Jim Molyneux was quite interested in, in responding positively to this, but he said, uh, rather than to do it, he said, in order to, to sign off on it, could we uh, see if we can have a meeting of Blair and myself as the parties we spoke respective Home Office spokesman and the two leaders, John Smith and Jim Mullen. So we had this four-way meeting in Smith's office, in the course of which Molyneux uh, reminisced about the time when Callaghan was there and that he was giving discreet assistance to Callaghan. And he was signalling in a fairly obvious way uh, that he was in, in, in the market for doing that again for Labour should the need arise. And I was sort of, you know, <laughs> the discussion the discussion I think was abbreviated for this and I was sitting listening to this and I suddenly realised he's never spoken to John Smith before mm-hmm. and he hadn't this was the first time he had a serious well he might have said hello to him in the, in the corridor but not had a proper this yeah. is the first time he's had a proper discussion with him mm-hmm. because if he'd had any proper discussion with him beforehand he would have done this he would have mentioned these things Already, the fact that he's bringing them in now means that this is the first time he's doing this, and which astonished me. Uh, but that's was part of the problem. Your, your relationship with Blair, it was a, a good relationship, was it? I mean, don't over-egg it, but would the agreement, do you think, have been possible? Forget the other parts of the debate, but would it have been possible without someone like Blair, who was reckoned to be reasonably supportive of, of, of your position? After the agreement, bumped into Michael Ancrum, who had been... Conservative Minister for Political Development uh, in the Northern Ireland office, and he's congratulated you know, me on the agreement and all the rest of it. I said, Michael, I got a better deal from Tony Blair than I ever would have got from you. 
But did, did that that's su- true. I know, but does that surprise you, the fact that, given the fact of, you know, your support for the Conservative Party now and the position you, you, you have with them, you know, was it ironic, was it odd, was it bizarre that the deal, when it eventually came, the well, most support came from Labour? Well, or from Blair? From Blair. You know, Frank Miller used to do those huge, big interviews with mm-hmm. people, and he did a big interview with, with Blair. And I was reading it afterwards, and I, I actually don't have actually got in touch with uh, Frank, but I bumped into him or was speaking to him shortly afterwards. And I was saying, you know, Blair's going very strong on the consent principle. Mm-hmm. And I said, does he really mean that? And Frank says, oh, yes, I pushed him on everywhere that he's absolutely rock solid on the, on the consent mm-hmm. principle. I really, if, I, you know, to say, if that is the case, we've been a very different sort of talks to the, the ones that we might have been in if mm-hmm. it was uh, with the Conservatives. Yeah. Uh, because, I mean, right, you know, the John Major wasn't as bad as Willie Whitelaw, but, you know, Whitelaw and the, the Conservatives at that time uh, had no compunction whatsoever about, about shafting the Ulster Unionist Party. The shafting unionism in general, I yeah. suspect. Yeah. Um, so there was that. There was another factor, too. Uh, David Burnside uh, did this for me. Uh, we had an, uh, a completely deniable, almost exchange of papers in the period, uh, in, the, in this the winter before the 97 election, okay. where we were sending messages to Blair, okay. setting out uh, what we thought were the realist, realistic parameters for, for a, a, you know, a solution. Mm-hmm. And we were getting reasonable responses back from him. Now, when I say realistic, we're realistic but also cautious. Mm-hmm. You know? uh, and, but we were getting you know, good you know, noises back from it. And then with the help, of very substantial help, of uh, you know, John, sorry, Paul Bew and others, the, the proposal was put in front of Blair when Sinis got elected that you know, this is a huge opportunity in this talks process and that, that led to the famous speech that he came to Belfast. First place he went to his Prime Minister outside of London and delivered that talk about, you know, the settlement train is leaving, said to Sinn Féin, I want you on it, but if you're not on it, we'll leave with, without you, which worked. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, Blair failed to show the same resolution uh, a number of points later. But that again created a, a good, you know, a good situation, and we kept uh, in fairly good, fairly close. To, you know, he, he was open with us. He was uh, and, and quite clear on, on where he was. And of course, there were many people at the time who, who said that he was the best Conservative Prime Minister we had. <laughs> 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 Good ask about Sinn Féin. You remember the, the process that. Uh, Blair I mean, was t- telling them that if they mm-hmm. that the train was going to move anyway, do you think Sinn Féin at that stage or any time since then have actually been serious about um, an internal settlement that works? Is it in their interests or why? Why did they do? Why did they? Why I can understand why unionism got involved in the talks process. What was it in for them? You know, it, it seemed to be like an abandoning of almost every position they'd ever held. So they must have hoped that. Either you would walk away at some point, then they would have the prime minister's ear, or that something would work out to their benefit. Well, it shows you actually just how difficult a position they were in. Mm-hmm. The the leadership, this is my assessment. I have no direct uh, information on this. Uh, the leadership knew that they were up the creek. Mm-hmm. It wasn't all that long since they rumbled, uh, rumbles Capitici, but they hadn't. They didn't dare to tell people what Capitici actually was doing. Mm-hmm because the consequences for their organisation would have been devastating. Uh, and I had no doubt, about what it was, it was Henry MacDonald gave me a bit of background on this. Uh, oh, very simple little thing. Scappatici notionally retired and went back to his building uh, activities. 
And then Henry said he noticed that Scabatici only got jobs on building sites that were not controlled by the provisionals, mm. which means that they, they didn't part as friends, that there was, you know... Uh, but it also meant that Scabatici was... Because there working, he knew he was in a strong enough position that he didn't have to fear for himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I presume he had taken out insurance and he knew how bad it would be for the leadership. Whether that was the crucial thing that led the, the leadership to, to move in the direction of the political process, I don't know, but they, were, they had nowhere else to go. Their campaign was failing. It wasn't gone completely, but they, they could see how things were, were rumbling down. And you've got that famous uh, article uh, penned by Danny Morrison, but not actually published until many years later, when, he, mm-hmm. when Morrison was sort of giving advice to them that they... they basically saying that they should you know, cash in the campaign for political advantage while there was still some life in it. Mm-hmm. You know? So they, they didn't have anywhere else to go. Uh, they're not stupid men, so they, they must have known that with the decision taken in the early stages of the talks in the 96 to 97 period to uh, treat uh, what had been agreed in 1992 of the procedural basis, to take that as it, which meant that we were deciding things on the basis of sufficient consensus, majority of nationalists, majority of unionists, as majorities being defined by reference to the elections preceding the talks. In those elections, Sinn Féin were the minority amongst nationalists. Mm-hmm. And so we knew then that a deal could be done, would, could be made with the government and with the SDLP without involving Sinn Féin, and Sinn Féin must have known that yeah. right from the outset. Mm-hmm. So they knew they were going into a process where they could be outvoted, uh, which shows you just how difficult the situation that, that they were coming from was if they then put themselves into that sort of straitjacket. They were probably confident of their abilities to uh, to shape the process mm-hmm. uh, while they were in the inside. And I think we haven't really given the SDLP credit for what they did. Sinn Féin were heavily opposed to a Northern Ireland Assembly. Mm-hmm. Uh, December 97, uh, the last few sessions, when we tried to get agreement on an agenda, and it broke down because of Sinn Féin's violent objections to even putting a Northern Ireland Assembly on the list, on the, on the agenda. Mm-hmm. They were not not going to have it on the agenda. Uh, the SDLP wanted it on the agenda, of course, uh, but they weren't prepared to uh, face down Sinn Féin at that stage. Uh, it took Blair to come in with uh, his heads of agreement paper, which is absolutely crucial. I mean, mm-hmm. If you look at that now, it is a summary of the of the uh, of the agreement. Yes, uh, and with all the major difficult points actually handled there, we'd started uh, shortly after things wound up for for uh, for, for Christmas, and and they they ended a very bad blood, and a lot of people thinking these talks are going to collapse with the, the way the things are. And Blair, to prevent that happening, he was starting bits of paper came our way, all the rest of it. And then when it got to the final stages of it, he was actually in Japan and he was making long-distance telephone calls. I remember having several conversations with him. And that the what was bringing the, the main sticking point towards the end was the position with regard to North-South cooperation and, and all the rest of it. Uh, which there was, it was a bogeyman for lots of unionists and, and uh, McCartney was constantly waving around the frameworks document saying this is what you're going to get and you get all this apparatus on the north-south thing and it's going to be you know huge and all the restaurants and so forth. And Blair had no difficulties himself with what I was suggesting which, well, to go into the detail of what, what I was suggesting is what I guess ended up in the agreement. 
Uh, and Blair said no great difficulties with that, but he said the problem with regard to Dublin is that Dublin says if this gives unions a complete veto, uh, and if they have that, there'll never be any you know, worthwhile mm-hmm. all the rest of it. So Blair was saying, what you got to do? You've just got to cut the deal uh, and agree to a number of you know uh, arrangements in advance, mm-hmm. uh, which I was very reluctant to do. But he, he said to me, look, I've arranged for a hern to phone you up. And it was on a Sunday night, evening uh, when I, a hern phoned me up. And I was actually out for a walk in Richmond Court. And uh, for the next 10 minutes, while walking around Richmond Court, he and I did a negotiation <laughs> on this point, uh, in which he, uh, Ern seemed to be quite happy to accept my bona fides. <laughs> and so that went into mm-hmm. the... And, of course, there was a blowback from Republicans and I think some nationalists as well, and the DFA, uh, and they were trying to claw back ground mm-hmm. beforehand, uh, which led to our... our uh, tearing up the frameworks document, or or Jeffrey's tearing up the Terry is with Jeffrey, yes, right. uh, which was stage managed by MP, but MP didn't tell me what was going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so. yeah. But uh, no, with with all those discussions, I mean, I I was getting there's one other I have to throw in as well, uh, but I was getting quite comfortable with uh, you know working with Blair, and I'll actually I'll, I'll conversation with Ahern as well because uh, okay, Ahern was a nationalist. But he was also uh, a, a, a negotiator and a person who, who, who was, you know, was interested in getting agreements and, and, and rather than, you know, mm-hmm. staking out positions. Now, the other thing is the uh, trip to uh, Checkers uh, several weeks before the last week of the talks, where Blair and I's principal private secretary, who was very good, and the name will come back to me shortly, uh, anyway, uh, was there, and we went through all the issues, outstanding issues, and how we're going to settle them. I took Jeffrey Donaldson with me for that, uh, and uh, now we didn't quite get one hundred percent of what we said at, at Checkers, and that was the big problem because one of the things we agreed on in Checkers uh, was that there had to be decommissioning before the Sinn Fein could take could get office, or that there had to be a linkage in the agreement between decommissioning and taking office mm-hmm. uh, which unfortunately wasn't there at the end of the day but uh, from the point of view of going into the talks uh, all of that sort of re- reinforcement. Dur- during the period before that last week while we were notionally negotiating with Sinn Féin we weren't in fact doing so uh, they were there in the plenary sessions the plenary sessions were very formal mm-hmm. uh, you know people were making speeches there wasn't a negotiation as such uh, but or, or an iteration of the position of parties mm-hmm. uh, and there might have been as were responses to what was said at the last you know uh, plenary meeting and all the rest of it most of the, the serious work was done in bilaterals and we did not meet Sinn Féin but as I knew Sinn Féin uh, uh, could be outvoted in the process would it have helped to meet Sinn Féin? Would it have been in your interests at that, at that stage? stage? no. Even in a, a sort of off the below the radar meeting? Well, I, I, Jerry kept trying to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, funny, the, the funniest one of the lot. I went into the chance. <laughs> the next thing, next year, Rhino, there's Jerry <laughs> standing there talking to me. So I told him, grow up. Mm. <laughs> Doing things like this just to you know. That's I, a frightening thought, actually, at many levels. <laughs> I, 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 I didn't say to him, but it was in my mind to say to him, that we're not going to do many good if I go around and say that you're propositioning people in the toilets. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, because in terms of the, of the um, 
Sinn Féin, when, when you on the April the 9th, 10th, when yeah. they you know you signed off in the Good yeah. Friday Agreement, and given what you're saying now about Sinn Féin, was it your view that this is the best it could get? It really is the beginning of maybe something new in Northern Ireland, or was that sense even then that these guys are, are reluctant? They've almost like they've been suckered into this position, and they are going to at some stage they're going to wake up and realise that it's not well, what they I mean, wanted. Uh, I'll come back to where the, the started few minutes ago. Uh, we f- sometimes fail to give enough credit to the SDLP for what they did. Mm-hmm. Those last, th- those last 24, 36 hours of the talks, they were under enormous pressure from Sinn Féin mm-hmm. not to make a deal. And the uh, Sinn Féin were almost were sitting out a position where they're going to be, you know, hammering the, the, the DUP, sorry, the SDLP for selling out and going back into uh, a storm that will be dominated by unionists and mm-hmm. so on and so forth and back all the rest of it. Now, that's why in our last meeting with the SDLP uh, on the uh, Thursday evening, uh, where the SDLP were looking for some safeguards and, and so on, I gave them basically what they asked for on the basis that uh, if, we're, if we're going to work together and if there's going to be an, agree- an agreement, it's going to be uh, an administration dominated by Ulster Unionist and SDLP. So we're going to work together. Mm-hmm. Then uh, we can't have them complaining about we screwed them on this or mm-hmm. we screwed them on that. We've got to have them there with a positive attitude towards it. So one of the silliest little things. So it struck me as being a silly thing, but obviously it wasn't, that we, we agreed the other th- things, the, the substantive things, and then... It was Huma Hink first realised. He said uh, that we were here talking about the uh, calling the minister secretaries for the secretary for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, can we have the word minister? Mm-hmm. The, the major office holder, offices in Westminster are secretary yeah. of state for the secretary for mm-hmm. that. You know, uh, look, John and George shrugged their shoulders. I said, okay. And they, one of them broke, started crying. Mm-hmm. And the only way I can rationalise that is the the sense of exclusion. Uh, in the old storm, it must have been enormous mm-hmm. that they never had any chance of being minister. So now being having the so magic allowed, word yeah. minister mm-hmm. was, was such a big thing for them. But the, the important thing is that for things to go ahead, we had to have a good relationship with them, and we had to put them in a position where they could count, they could then uh, give a good, clear reply to any of the criticisms that would come from Sinn Féin. So they had to have the various little commission committees that they wanted in the assembly, which have never been used, mm-hmm. but they're there in the agreement. They had to have that in order to have be able to re- refute the what, what Sinn Féin would say. But it didn't become necessary because it became very clear very early on in the campaign that there was going to be a massive vote for, uh, in amongst nationalists for the agreement. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when the Sinners realised that, they... they they did the quickest U-turn you've ever seen. Mm-hmm. And the, the amount of... They, they, I'm quite sure, uh, during the negotiations, during that last night, even on the day in which the agreement was voted through, they abstained. Mm-hmm. And their, the reason for their abstention was their hostility to, to Stormont. So, yes, uh, they didn't want Stormont. Uh, but uh, they, it is what they got, and it's what the people voted for. Uh, and then they proceeded to make the best of, of that situation. But another little thing, which I find very interesting, it's the time when Pavarotti was was doing an open air concert at, uh, at mm-hmm. Stormont, and uh, we were allowed um, those who had offices that opened up onto the mm-hmm. uh, onto, onto the, the approach were uh, allowed to 
be in their office and to have people in their office. I, I had to be dying out there, and there was a reception up in Parliament buildings afterwards, and about a, a certain amount of time for the end of the concert, the beginning of the reception. So I was slowly coming back into Parliament buildings, front entrance, and I hear click, 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 almost dancing down the, 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 the stairs. Jerry uh, Kelly, uh, smartly dressed as always, and he all on stairs, turned around, headed towards the, uh, the, the assembly chamber, and a great great moment. Curious what this was. So I slowly paddled off behind it, came to the, the entrance, of, into the assembly chamber, which was open, and there I could see Jerry Kelly standing in the middle with about 15 or 20 youngsters around him, and he's doing the tourist guide, but he's talking about this, and his arms are going to like that, and all the rest of it, with, with a, a, an air of pride about him, mm-hmm. and, and, and the children were, you know, looked smiling and impressed, and all the rest of it. So I thought to myself, hmm, that tells you something. Uh, talked about Sinn Fein's U turn there, um, and you know the amount of work that the SLP did. What was your position like? Because having done, I mean, uh, you, you, I think you were right. I think unionism gained an awful lot. But you were in a terribly difficult position having to sell this because quite a few in your own party didn't want it. Paisley, um, McCartney, and so on were against it as well. What was the problem? What was there? Was that some fault to do with with your selling of it, or was it just some sort of something to do with the unionist psyche? They could not accept that it was just possible, possible that you had actually seen Sinn Féin off and said, actually, they don't want to be here. I've got them here. We're better than we were. There you've got to bear in mind the, 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 the 25 years uh, of marginalisation, of defeat politically again and again. Uh, and some of these fellows have been around for all those 25 years. Mullen certainly had. Uh, Ross, Smith, Taylor... Uh, they'd all been there for that. And I think uh, the iron had got into the soul during that mm-hmm. time. Uh, and and then there's another aspect of too. If they were to concede that this was possible and it had been done, then the question is, well, if you were there for 20 years, how come you... You didn't, yeah. Right? Uh, and there had been, and, and some of them do remember the time in 75 when we could have done a deal with the SDLP, a better deal mm-hmm. than the 98 deal. Uh, and it was uh, uh, Smith and Molyneux and Powell who sank it. And well, Paisley's U-turn also contributed to that on that as well. So they had that, you know, because you know, if they said to me, well, this isn't as good a deal, I did actually say to people sometimes, well, we had a better deal in 75 and we, and we didn't take it. And we've now got a better Deal here than what you would have, what government would have imposed on you if you didn't. If we hadn't got balls in the talks. And I know hindsight's a, a dangerous and quite often stupid thing, but are there moments you sort of think if only during that campaign, that the referendum campaign, I had done this or said that? Do you think it would no, have no, made the, any the, difference? Referendum. Bear in mind, we were nearly sunk right at the beginning with that incredibly stupid action by Mo Molum of allowing the, a number of IRA prisoners to be uh, lied out. Uh, and uh, on a Sunday for a meeting in Dublin, which was played uh, again and again and again uh, on the television screens on Sunday, but I suppose the excuse the programme makers have is that uh, it's not a big news day, but by God, the, the, the shinners uh, at that, I say these are our Mandelas and all that sort of crap, and, and they, they milked that for all it's worth, and the BBC and showing it again and again at length also. Mm-hmm. I remember turning up 
Monday morning. I didn't actually watch this. I don't watch television now. Uh, in those days, uh, I'd heard about a bit about this. When I arrived down uh, in Armagh for a team to go out canvassing, uh, my workers, my councillors, my local uh, persons holding office in the, the association there were shell-shocked, mm-hmm. completely demoralised, saying, we can't go out there. After what happened yesterday, we'll be, dis- we'll be annihilated. <laughs> yeah, and we had to go. had to find a way of restarting a camp. Because originally... Our view was the important election for us was the assembly election. Let the referendum go. Uh, you know, it's, let the government fight the referendum for Were us. Were you reasonably confident that it was going to pass anyway, that and no, that, getting involved would have been damaging? Maybe? No, 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 no. We, uh, yes, I was assuming that it was going to get through mm-hmm. uh, and that the, the big thing will be the, the assembly election. With that Sunday, we could not assume now that it was going to get through. Mm-hmm. And we had to get a fresh campaign started from, you know, from scratch which involved, you know, bringing Blair over for one of his, you know, five points and <laughs> right from up there. Right, right. Yes, right, I need all the rest of it. Uh, and then somebody had the good idea of, of that uh, concert at the, the waterfront, uh, which, you know, it, it made very good propaganda. I remember, actually, we, we used that, a, 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 a photograph of that scene, not the people holding hands mm-hmm. up, but the, the crowds of young people enjoying themselves. Mm-hmm. We used that, actually. Uh, in, in a poster in the so we had to start a campaign from scratch and I knew that we had to get a unionist majority uh, John thought I was saying he was saying two thirds would be good enough and I said no wait, wait, until we get the yes over 70% we can't be sure there's a unionist majority mm-hmm. and I said we just, just did it no more and if we'd fallen short on that we'd have an enormously difficult uh, situation mm-hmm. to be in the big problem for me wasn't that campaign, nor even the pledges, because, uh, or even, nor, nor even uh, whether the letter I got from Blair was of value or not. It was actually, and he did implement it. He did. He did. He actually did more than he promised to do in that letter. Uh, but that's another story. The big problem was the assembly election. And the fact that the party centre and the party leadership had no control over what happened in the party. That was the big problem. And, and that's what eventually ended up destroying the party. Mm-hmm. Because the, the party then for the next half dozen years proceeded to sh- prove that it was incapable of taking decisions. or sticking to decisions mm-hmm. because we got a majority from the party, the executive. And we got a majority from the council mm-hmm. uh, in 98, immediately afterwards. And that should have been it. Uh, but when the other people uh, started to uh, uh, run the, basically their own campaigns and to indicate they will not support this, will not support that, and one then had no con- levers of control over them, uh, then that caused the problem. And I could not be sure, I was not going to get in a situation where uh, I was being, uh, you know, getting vo- votes between 52 and 56 percent at union council meetings. I was not going to be able to change the constitution of the party. Mm-hmm. That must have been enormously it frustrating. Is that where I mean? I, I don't know where they something said the, the phrase the the Daphne principle. As long as you get one vote more than the, your opponents, but was it really? Was it coming down to that, David? That there was so much internal, you know, opposition to you and the, particularly from people who well, like that. <sighs> We had the former MPs. Uh, Frank Willis is a joke. He said, he said that, that uh, uh, Jim Mulliner now pays more, more attention to what the Parliamentary Party thinks than he ever did when he was leader. Which was true. Uh, and there was a campaign that was organised there 
I probably spent too much time on the party and I should have spent more time on the public. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we knew we were going to have these challenges. We knew we had to, to win them. Uh, and in order to do so, uh, I was, before each Union's Council meeting, we would organise three or four meetings around the problems. Inviting to that uh, persons who were uh, delegates to the council, uh, not inviting people who are hardcore antis, but people who are, you know, sceptics, certainly there. And I would go and I would give a, a 15, 20 minute resume of the position and then I would take questions. The longest time I took, spent taking questions was two and a quarter hours. And it was a really deep, and, and, and nobody who wanted to say something was prevented from mm -hmm. saying something. Although I might say to someone, look, you've had a couple of goes, can we take some of that and I'll come back to you later? And I always did. And I, I always just did a, a low-keyed argument. Uh, there was no uh, uh, you know, emotional appeals. It was all just, you know, let's see what, what the problem is, talk our way through this problem and, and sort it out. Now, that, that actually uh, did the job of keeping the, the sensible people there mm -hmm. with me. And... Uh, while we were getting low votes in the Unionist Council, in terms of activists, we were actually getting the support of about 75%. Mm -hmm. Right from the very beginning, the Orange Order started a campaign of changing the Orange delegates okay. and uh, putting in as Orange delegates people who were firmly anti and who were not actually Ulster Unionists. Mm -hmm. But they, they all they, they stuck by the rules and damn all we could do about it, you know. Uh, so, but the, one of the problems about me spending so much time doing that, I wasn't spending enough much enough time speaking publicly to the unionist electorate. Mm -hmm. right, that's there. There was a, a mistake there. Uh, our system of uh, canvassing people or delegates was very good, and before every meeting, uh, the after the first couple of meetings. Uh, Every meeting thereafter, David Campbell would come in to me the day before, put down a little bit of paper with a percentage on it and say, that's the result. And he was never more than 1% out. And there was, of course, the time he came. And he said to me, he said, you're going to lose. Mm -hmm. And so I said, whoops, that way I've got to change. And I actually met that. That was the big one in the Ramada where uh, there were, the proceeding was adjourned to allow a, a group. A quiet meeting, that's it. Yes. In September. Yeah, was, yes. And... And I remember beforehand, it was, I was I was arguing for look, you know, to, that we have you know a resolution, mm -hmm. completely different to what I'd been circulating beforehand, uh, taking account of the concerns of people and all the rest of it, and saying let's see if we can get an agreed position on this. Uh, and I can remember Martin Smith in the front row shouting at whoever it was in charge, pointing to his watch and shouting to put the vote, put the vote, mm -hmm. and he didn't get it. And in the discussion, uh, in the side, we we got uh, Jeffrey to be half sensible. And to agree something mm -hmm. uh, that uh, he, he got told off sharply, I, I believe afterwards by Malmo and others for, for agreeing well, to that. I, I think there was a, that was the meeting. Uh, I think there was some sort of they, they were convinced that um, you were going to be toppled at yeah. that point, um, which is interesting because then they ended up at the end of that meeting shredding each other <laughs> in an anti room afterwards. I was going to say I, I, I don't know where I heard it from, but I know I've seen it in print. Um, you were quoted somewhere as saying. And it could be from one of these meetings that you wouldn't do uh, a Faulkner. And some people interpret that as meaning that if you lost a vote at one of the big UUC meetings at that stage, you wouldn't have immediately have resigned and gone, well, that's it, there's nothing more I can do. No, what, what Faulkner did, the reference there is to uh, <coughs> after Sunningdale, when uh, Faulkner was defeated in the Ulster Unionist Council. In the January, I said. 
he he and his supporters left and formed a new party. Mm-hmm. That's what I wasn't. All right, if you were there. That's what I wasn't going to. So, and, and just on the personal level, they were just thinking some of the people, and I won't mention them. You'll know who they are. Who were very supportive of your leadership. Mm-hmm. Who wanted you to be leader. In fact, were saying to me, Alex, write pieces, get people to write pieces about this man Trimble. They were the ones who became the most antagonistic towards you, you know, in that sort of 98 period. I mean, a number of them said to me, I mean, one in particular said to me, um, to my dying day, I'll regret backing him because he destroyed the party I love. Now, you, how difficult is it? I mean, you must have seen friends, people who've been with you politically for maybe 20 years, walking from you. How difficult is that? There were a number of young fellows who did that. Uh, one or two of them I might have counted as friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they weren't sensible. Mm-hmm. Mentioned there was one in particular uh, who I, you know, I thought was had the a, the intelligence and the political maturity to realise that this was the right thing to do, but who was just so bitter mm-hmm. and who whose hatred of nationalists was so deep. Uh, there were and actually the the other thing um, which was quite sobering to see was to actually to see how deep the feelings of sectarianism are amongst some of the middle class. Mm-hmm. Some of them are very, you know, they give a different impression or all the rest of them. Push comes to some, you know, there are some very embittered people there. Uh, and they, it was frustrating that they didn't realise that they'd actually got a victory. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know the old joke that the uh, Republicans know they're, they're defeated, but they're... they're Keep quiet. They're, they're, the unionists uh, are too Tell stupid to realise that they won. won. Yes. Right, yes. <laughs> you know? That's not true of unions as a whole, but mm-hmm. it was true of that. The, the other thing that damaged us is that uh, the government did not uh, deliver on the decommissioning front the way that it should have done. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was the problem. I mean, if, if we had had... Uh, I mean, the letter I got from Blair said that in view of the government, the government's view of the, the, the agreement that... Uh, that uh, decommissioning should begin in the summer as soon as the decommissioning schemes are in place. Summer came and went. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, as you know, there was a, a fight behind the scenes. The Northern Ireland office thought the, the idea of decommissioning was daft and we should forget about it, mm-hmm. uh, which is just an appallingly bad. That, that's obviously what the DFA told the Northern Ireland office to think, mm-hmm. and that's part of the problem with the Northern Ireland office in those days. That, that, that they, they listened more to the DFA than anybody else. Uh, but Blair was, uh, he was started to become susceptible to the line that uh, Adams and McGuinness were, were feeling to him about we're in difficult, you know, we're, we've mm-hmm. got to manage this organisation and we don't want it going back. And yes, we know that the, this has got to be dealt with and all the rest of it, has got to be done carefully and we need your help to, you know, mm-hmm. to get us along the way. And over, it took a couple of years, but actually they turned Blair around. Mm-hmm. So the Blair saw the situation from their point of view. He was still very friendly and very much concerned, uh, and he did, yes, bitterly blame himself for what, uh, what happened to, to me. He didn't don't care so much about the party, but he didn't realise it was what he did that did that. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you have the sense then that um, maybe you personally in the party and, and Malin and he were, that were hung out to dry by Blair because he made a decision, or someone made a decision, that this agreement was only going to be done by the DUP and Sinn Féin? It wasn't, it wasn't just... It's, it's, uh, no, I don't think he was in that position. I don't think that was his position. Uh, the the DFA were the people who started the line going uh, that it has to be the DUP and Sinn Féin, mm-hmm. uh, that the moderates have done what they can and that's it, but it was time to move on from that. 
Uh, but the DFA were only doing that because they regarded their primary the, the interest was to look after the the, uh, the Sinn Féin leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, was there a fear that if they didn't look after the Sinn Féin are out, then the IRA no, back to business? Be, can't have been. Can't have been. Uh, because uh, the what we heard was that the, the view of the, the people, you know, the, the security people in Dublin was that Adams and McGuinness are in control of the organisation. Mm-hmm. We know that that was the view of the British intelligence agencies as well. Uh, but yet, uh, you know, the, you had people pockets in uh, the DFA. Remember, the DFA would have been talking quite a lot to Irish Americans. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what happened to Richard Haas. He started off being very good. Uh, but then uh, it was actually, I think, Irish-Americans that turned him round on, on that. Uh, or he began to see uh, that uh, there were advantages for him in keeping Irish-Americans in, in debt because they, they, they pretty well controlled that, uh, that Foreign Affairs Council in New York, mm-hmm. which, has, which they gave House the Foreign Relations Council. Yes. yes. Uh, so it Hass's, became Hass's own personal interest to do, to do what he did. Uh, and although I, I should have moved against him earlier, I did eventually get to get to the point where I stopped making excuses for Haas. And I, 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 you know, one time in Washington, uh, I got to the point of speaking to get past Haas, and it was uh, Condoleezza Rice mm-hmm. that I had. Uh, although, <laughs> having arranged a meeting, which I didn't want to complain about Haas, to Rice, Rice brings Hass along to the meeting. <laughs> that must have been difficult. <laughs> it was a very interesting conversation. Uh, and he would say something, I said, well, I know that Richard thinks it, but I, I, I think that is not the case. I think it's such and such. But I had a bloody awful meeting. I came out of the meeting. It took me about 10 or 15 minutes to get to the phone call. Phone up, uh, uh, Jonathan Pyle said, bloody awful meeting. Hass was there. And he said, no, no, it's all right. right. They now know, they must have been she, they now know there is a problem. Mm -hmm. And not long after, Hass departed. Mm -hmm. I should have done this that earlier. Uh, That might have helped. Uh, Blair, uh, he was being played by Sinn Féin. Uh, He was susceptible to what they were saying. Uh, Why why do you think he was susceptible to what they were saying? Uh... He's got his, this bloody optimism of his, uh, <laughs> part of it, uh, and part of it that he, he believed, or he, he tended to, to believe what they were saying to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, this, you know, help us with this situation, I think, it was something they found difficult to do. Uh, I had, was being told uh, that the permanent secretaries uh, were supporting Joe Pilling, who was complaining at great length uh, about the way in which... Uh, Trimble has got access to constant access to uh, to Blair, uh, and it shouldn't be. He should be doing it through the Northern Ireland office and all the rest of it. And of course, all the, the uh, permanent secretaries would, would defend the position of a permanent secretary in situations like that. And with hearing that, and I thought to myself, well, it might might be better for me not to be there all the time. Mm-hmm. And that was an, another mistake I made. Uh, and uh, it was actually Peter Mandelson warned us about this. Although again, I we didn't actually pick up on just how serious the situation is. He said that uh, you shouldn't underestimate the, the extent to which Adams and McGuinness are constantly badgering Blair. Mm-hmm. And you, this was on a, virtually on a daily basis. Do you think Blair believed that um, 
Sinn Féin were serious about an internal settlement and that if they if they got what they, they kept asking for, that somehow they'd come a day fairly quickly, I suppose, from Blair's perspective, that that would be it. That would, he would be able to say, the agreement is up and running, the parties are all now happy, everyone's... Well, I think that, that, that is what has happened. Mm. That might not have been Sinn Féin's position in '98, mm-hmm. uh, but their position a few years later was that. Very interesting pointer on that. Uh, 2005... We get wiped out, DUP pole position, and so what did the Republican movement do? They very quickly, very quietly, without telling other people beforehand, without making a having a political negotiation about it, they just go and completely decommission everything. Mm-hmm. And no doubt that that happened, and that it was as full as it could have been in the circumstances. There were always going to be bits. Uh, McKevitt had taken some stuff away when he went, and there was other stuff that uh, just got lost, but. The, uh, the, the people on that commission uh, were satisfied that they, they got all that there was to be got. Mm-hmm. And the Republicans did that without asking for a, uh, uh, without positing a political price for it. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, they were quite happy to be niggardly on decommissioning uh, when, it, 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 when it was then feeding into negotiations with Blair and the other parties in which Blair always felt he had to give them things. Which, of course, as you know, did had a huge, very negative effect on unionist opinion, mm-hmm. uh, and they didn't do that mm-hmm. after after two thousand five. They stopped doing that, and then they just got rid of what otherwise would be a huge obstacle. Did did, did there come a point, um, maybe say two thousand and one, between the two thousand and one and two thousand and five period, the, the mm-hmm. general election, that you thought, I can't. Whoever completes this journey, it's not going to be me. Well, there's. Your question. There was 2003, the assembly elections in 2003, and uh, what we heard uh, on, about that was that the IRA had said to Adams and McGuinness, "Say anything you like, as long as you get an elect- assembly election." Mm-hmm. But the one thing they had to get was an assembly election uh, because they were going to use the assembly election to destroy the SDLP, and that's the situation where the DUP just got their nose in front of us. But, you know, after that it was clear what was going to come. But the, the, the fact that the, the IRA were saying to Adams and McGuinness, or you put it around another way, that the people who were the other leaders of the, of the, of the IRA had said to Adams and McGuinness, get an assembly election. So they want, at that point, they want the assembly election. Uh, and they weren't too keen on continued suspension. Mm-hmm. So I think they, 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 they were of the view, and, and McGuinness has said this, uh, that they could see by then that the DUP were up for a, a, a you know, for a, mm-hmm. and uh, the the DUP position in the 2003 election clearly advertised they were up for a, mm-hmm. an agreement because when they talk about a fair deal and that that fair that means they're going to have a negotiation. Mm-hmm. Who are they going to negotiate with? It has to be the governments and and, the, and, and Sinn Fein. What are they going to get? Are these people going to uh, write a different agreement for them? No. It's, it's you know it's clearly it was going to be like Harold Wilson's renegotiation in, in seventy five with the European Union, so uh, that that was pretty well on the card. Mm-hmm. I could content myself by saying what we did between ninety eight and 03 in those five years is we forced the DUP to change its position to the position that they're now in. But that doesn't actually mean that the assembly is is running as it should. Well, I was going to ask you that that period from. Um 2007, May 2007, the DUP Sinn Féin did the deal to now. I mean, just uh, you're outside looking in at it now. How, how do you view all of that? 
Well, obviously everybody, we've got a dysfunctional administration mm -hmm. that is uh, unable to, to agree and unable to even have a civilised relationship mm -hmm. in there. Both those parties have, in effect, obviously the same problem. Both those parties cannot give, each of those two parties, cannot give an honest account of how it got where it is mm -hmm. because the sinners uh, can't sort of say, well, we realised that the terrorist campaign uh, was, was, was you know, not going to work, mm -hmm. it was the wrong thing to do, and we've now realised that the thing to do is to, you know, to do, uh, accept work within the democratic process uh, except the, you know, the, 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 that, as the agreement says, the future is in the hands of the people of Northern Ireland as to how they want to and all the rest and so forth. They can't say that. That is actually the situation they've put themselves in. Mm -hmm. They've abandoned the terrorist campaign. Why? Because they realised it wasn't going to work. They like to make, mis uh, uh, you know, uh, try and exculpate themselves by saying it was a campaign for equality, which it wasn't. You know, so they're trying to do this bit of rewriting history, which shows that you know they, they realise that they, uh, history, their position has changed. The DUP are in a similar position too, because they launched a campaign against the agreement, uh, and their initial position from April '98 on was that the agreement was terrible and everything had to be destroyed, and whatnot, and all the rest of it. Uh, and the DUP then they've got their St Andrew's fig leaf, which I don't think impresses anybody. And the man on the street who doesn't look at the detail of these things, probably totally unaware of the fig leaves in, in uh, the St Andrews Agreement. But they say the DUP have changed. But the DUP are unable to say that they've changed. And if they, if both those parties were uh, to give an honest account of themselves, then they would have a basis on which they could work together. But they haven't been able to do that. So I, I actually think it's a very fair point. Let's assume for the sake of this argument that we've had a number of phases in this process. The one that sort of 97 to 2003 was getting the institutions up and running and sort of semblance of um, effectiveness. The second stage was um, the from 2007 supposedly to now where you have um, the majority parties of unionism and um, republicanism at the heart of government. That doesn't seem to be working either. Is it, in your assessment, is it possible to actually make this assembly work or get this, create a situation where, as you say, there's trust, honesty, openness, whatever you want to call it, at the heart, and suddenly these two parties can go, yeah, we yeah. can now but go together. You don't have to do any changes to, to achieve that. Hmm. You don't have to change the structures or the architecture to achieve that. All you've got to do is to get to have the two party leaderships uh, you know, to come to terms with themselves and the situation they're in. How likely is that? Do you, well, think, do you think either the either McGuinness or Robinson can to put a <laughs> man up and say, OK, here's the reality. We didn't want to be here. We are here. This is how we got here. Now let's work. Is that possible? And McGuinness is capable of that. Robinson? Uh, that, I, I don't know about Robinson. Is his successor? I mean, I think we're looking at Robinson heading towards the, the retirement door within the next year. So I think that, well, that's... He, he would have retired before now oh, if right. he was able to get anybody to take, <laughs> to take the job. Nobody will. <laughs> but at some point, somebody will have to take the job. Can you see, looking at potential replacements, can you see any of those being able to say, well, actually, you know, I've, I've, I've seen what David Trimble said. That's a fair point. Do I see anybody within the DUP who's capable of doing it, I don't I don't see, but then I'm not familiar with them. I'm not in a position mm -hmm. to say one thing, you know, pro or con on that point. Uh, but it's, you know, it's not up to me. One has to say it. it doesn't look, it doesn't appear to be on the horizon at the moment. So, well. But it, that's the logic of the situation. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and uh, okay, the public, when they see that that is not happening, are, are getting quite irritated with the politicians. And unfortunately, that means getting irritated with Stormont and, and so forth. Uh, and uh, that's not a healthy state of affairs. The, can I, I want to just sort of talk about Republicans on this for a moment. Uh, Republicans have, a, because again, they're not giving an honest account of how they got there, they have problems with their grassroots and their supporters. Uh, who have to say, well, you know, you were fighting for a United Ireland and now you're in politics for this. How are you going to get it? And uh, first, they're probably, probably going to say, oh, uh, um, demography, the demographic changes. You know, that, not getting anywhere. Taking power north and south, that's not getting anywhere. They're not likely to do it. There's another one line which I'm not aware of them saying publicly, but we know that this is something that's in their minds and actually... Uh, some people have said to, to me, or a person has said to me, uh, that part of the reason why Republicans did what they did is that they were convinced, or they had been told by people who were convinced, uh, that the uh, creation of the Scottish Parliament would lead to the breakup of the United Kingdom. And they see that. Uh, they, they, they've come over their horizon very firmly. I mean, they, until about a year ago, Sinn Féin had never sent delegates to Ed, uh, delegations to Edinburgh. Since then, they've had nothing but a constant stream of people coming. Uh, and then, they, during the, the referendum campaign, there was that nasty underside of uh, the SNP that, that was trolling people and really being very unpleasant. And you don't have to take too many guesses as to what part of the, part of the political spectrum those people, those individuals came from. Uh, and you know, they would have been Scottish supporters of Sinn Féin mm-hmm. would, would have been providing a lot of that manpower there is for us a huge problem here because the threat, there's still a threat to the United Kingdom but the threat to the United Kingdom now comes from 45% of the Scottish people How do you think unionism here has responded to that? So do you think they are aware of, the, of the, the magnitude of it? I don't know I'm not following things that closely uh, I, I prefer to keep a little I'll keep myself detached from it like that. Why? No, it's just, it's just saying that to me. Why, given that you've been actively involved since the early 70s or right the way through to about 2005, and now you go, no, I don't. Look, I, I have a, 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 an obligation to the Ulster Unionist Party. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was on my watch that they got wiped out. So I have to take some of the responsibility for that there. Uh, and one of the things I have to do as a result of that is make sure I don't do anything unhelpful mm-hmm. to the leadership. Uh, and uh, where I can support what they're doing. Uh, and I think I've got... To, that's part of the reason why I, I don't take it. Work. I get requests from interviews on a regular basis. And I know it's the usual crowd uh, in the, the Belfast media who want to think, have things stirred up and they like nothing better than a shouting match. And I'm just keeping well out of... completely out of that. Um, I was very much in favour of the link-up with the Conservatives. That's why I joined the Conservatives, and I, I told Cameron that that's why I was joining him, mm-hmm. because that's I, I, I said out to him the reasons why that would be a good thing to do, because it's the only way in which you can start to dismantle, as it were, the uh, the still very strong sectarian feelings that exist in Northern Ireland, mm-hmm. which are not diminishing, unfortunately. Uh, enough is happening to keep them to keep exacerbating that problem. And the only way you change the problem is by changing the the, politic, the nature of politics here. Mm-hmm. And the best single way of doing that is to get the national parties involved and have a, a, a realignment of political parties here, uh, which will involve uh, the Conservative and Unionist Party being a, 
a more you know, a comprehensive party and which you know uh, Catholics who want to support the union can join and get involved in political activity that way. Uh, Labour, same thing happening there on that front. And OK, you'll have a rump nationalist party, so Sinn Féin will still be there. You might have some rump parties to, to some extent. But that change is actually hugely important because it's the only thing. What we do need is to get a change of the atmosphere in politics here. And that's the only way I can see it happening. Would you like it now with the Ulster Unionists with um, two members of Parliament? I think um, uh, signs, maybe revival is too strong, but signs of, of people being willing to vote for it again. Would you like to see a revisit to the um, to the UConf project? Well, maybe not that project, but certainly a, a, a revisit to some sort of better relationship between the two parties. It's obvious that after uh, the 2010 election, uh, the DUP were putting a lot of pressure on, on, on Cameron. Mm-hmm. And his own party would have been doing the same thing too, saying, like, the LCUs have no seats, these fellows have eight. You know, mm-hmm. was, they, they would call that a no-brainer as to what you do. Shoot them out, doesn't it? Yes. Uh, now the, the, the situation is changing. Um, it's the next election, the Assembly election, is going to be absolutely c- critical for the LCUs party. Um, the Council elections last year were good. Uh, in fact, in some places, the the, um, the results were you know you know incredibly good. To have a situation where the ABC council, you know, the uh, Armagh, Banbridge, Craig Avon one has got equal number of uh, Democratic and Ulster Unionists, yes, and that that is a huge huge step forward. Uh, getting the two members of Parliament, uh, I would have preferred it to be done without doing a deal. Uh, in which case Tom Elliott wouldn't have won for Man of South Throne, but Joanne might have won uh, Upper Band. Mm-hmm. She lost She Well, she lost votes. There were votes that she could have got, many alliance votes, that she lost because of the deal. Yeah. Yeah. And if she had those votes with her, uh, you know, so we'll have to see uh, how things go on that. The leadership of the Conservative Party now is, is focusing its the party organisation there. Uh, is turning its mind more and more to Scotland. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got to do the same ourselves here. Uh, the The Scottish threat is huge, uh, and uh, we're going to have to do what we can. We've, there, there are hopeful signs there. Ruth Davidson is one of the very, very good things that have happened there. Uh, the uh, election, and again, everybody said, sort of, OK, SNP got 56 seats. Uh, and Labour and, and uh, Lib Dems reduced to one. Conservatives stay was one. Uh, actually, it was a good result from the Conservatives. They were within 300 votes of taking a second seat, mm. which, you know, if, if they'd got that, you know, if, if they had gone up from mm-hmm. one to two, that's just, that would be enormous. Uh, but at the moment, uh, it's interesting in terms of Scottish politics, in terms of, like, the leadership level, uh, there's now nothing, there, there's no Lib Dem left there at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, the likelihood is that uh, Conservatives, with a little bit of you know, uh, care, should be able to hoover up most Lib Dem votes. Uh, Scottish Lib Dems are not the same as Lib Dems in England. Mm-hmm. And a lot of Lib Dems, people like Ming Camp, uh, who clearly is a uh, Conservative, but he joins the Lib Dems. So that there are people there who, you know, uh, who, are cons- who should be open to, and particularly if we get a Labour Party that's lurching to the left, mm-hmm. 
that's going to help as well. I think the, the, those two factors, those factors should give the Scottish Conservatives a very real, you know, opportunity. There's nobody of any stature who's going to be leading the Lib Dems in the next Scottish Parliament. Uh, There'll be a new Labour leader with no idea who he or she is going to be. How bad would it be for Labour and how good for Conservatives if it was Corbyn? Or would he, could he just be a surprise and be so interesting and attract so much attention that he might actually be more spook-worthy for the Conservatives than the you know, fairly predictable um, Andy Burnham and so on? Uh, Andy Burnham, I think, has pretty well destroyed himself by his just being so weak mm-hmm. in dealing with this situation. Uh, and certainly... Uh, charging off to the left himself, uh, which is just plain daft. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've not great respect for Yvette Cooper, but she has been slightly more sensible. But it's a huge indictment to the Labour Party that they haven't anybody better than Liz Kendall to be there being the sensible mm-hmm. person. Uh, and she doesn't have the, uh, the profile to, to, you know, to attract support. So that's, you know, and in one sense, actually, uh, that well, put it there. There's a limit to how far Corbyn can go. I'm quite sure about this. Mm. Uh, Crudis has been pointing to this that the opinion poll researching that they're taking is that uh, the reason why they didn't do well is that most of the electorate still took the argument in favour of austerity, uh, and they they didn't withhold their votes from Labour because Labour weren't strong enough in attacking austerity. They withheld their votes from Labour because Labour was criticising austerity. Uh, so even natural Labour supporters, Wouldn't. a lot of them are not going to buy the, the Corbyn line. Uh, we see from elections elsewhere that in present circumstances, because of the financial crash, because the Eurozone is a failure, uh, there is now uh, 20 to 25% of the, the electorate in a given country is ready to vote for crazy candidates. <laughs> and that's happening all over Europe. Yes, sir. Right? Hmm. And we, we, they, in Elsewhere in Europe, it's a, a, a set of crazies that have come up from nowhere. Here, it's a set of crazy, uh, crazies who are on the fringes of Labour have just taken over Labour. So there's a limit to how far they, they can go. Uh, interesting the way SNP people are making positive comments about Corbyn. SNP uh, MSPs uh, went, uh, Corbyn did a few trips to, uh, to, to, to Scotland last yeah. week. Large numbers of the yeah, SNP so, yeah. went to that. And they liked what they heard. Mm-hmm. And they sort of say, he's a man like us. <laughs> <laughs> They're in for a rude shock, I suspect, if he ever does. Um, three three final questions. Um, is the union safe? I know you said to me that there's a huge challenge from, this, from Scotland, what's happening there, but is, is the United Kingdom safe, do you think? Well, it's safe from what we had been concerned about over the last 30 years. Mm-hmm. It's safe from a point of view of uh, Republican... Uh, attempts to detach Northern Ireland from the United Kingdom have failed and they're not going to, to succeed. Um, the fact that our polit- the quality of our politics and our administration is poor uh, is itself a problem. Uh, I can't quite see that being uh, a threat to the Union in itself. The big threat to the Union comes from Scotland. Uh, there is going to be another referendum sometime five, ten years from now. Uh, It'll not come immediately because uh, for all the uh, boost that they've got, uh, which hasn't actually changed anything from the referendum, this is the same vote that that Mm -hmm. went uh, yes, 
which lost out when there was just uh, two sides to the argument, yes or no. Uh, but going into an election, especially going to first past the post election with 45% of the, the, uh, the vote yours gives you a, a complete wipeout of everybody else. Mm-hmm. Going into a, uh, Scottish parliamentary election conducted by PR means they're going to be there or thereabouts. You know, they, they, it'll not be a wipeout. Uh, they're going to be the largest party. They'll probably uh, be able to form an administration, uh, even if they don't have an overall majority, but they might even have an overall majority. But they're not going to have a huge majority. But what we're going to have to do over the course of the next uh, few years is start having a sensible discussion with people in Scotland. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've also got to make sure that what we're doing in the rest of the country is, is actually being positive in this respect. Uh, and I think we've got to actually see that there were huge mistakes in the no campaign in the referendum. I think the big failing was... Uh, the failure to give a positive case for the union. Mm-hmm. It was all on the, the, the doom and gloom, you know, uh, it's not going to work and all the rest, rest of it. Uh, when there should have, yes, there should have been critiques there, all the rest of it, but there should also be a strong positive case for the union, which uh, was what our party in Scotland wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the party nationally wanted to concentrate on the, the negatives. But it is not, I mean, you make that point, a very good point. I mean, people would say that of unionism in Northern Ireland as well, that they, they spend so much time critiquing or, and pushing the negatives, they, they, they rarely find the time to say, well, actually, here's the reason for believing in the union, here's the reason for keeping the United Kingdom link. Well, there, there, is, there is a difference, in a sense. Uh, part of the reason why unionists here is, well, well some unionists, or a lot of unionists here, uh, don't do what you've suggested is they say, well, there's no point doing it because uh, they're not going to change. Well, you, we, we, we know we're in favour of the union and all mm-hmm. the rest of it. The people who are against the union. They're not going to change. It doesn't matter what we argue to them. That they, they, you know, uh, because they're nationalists, because they're Catholics, they're, they're, that's just the way they're going to be. Uh, I'm not accepting that situation, and I think one should be making a positive case here. But Scotland is different in that the uh, that aspect to it is, doesn't, is not present in Scotland in the same way. Uh, and there are people who are open to listen to a positive case being given mm-hmm. uh, and who would be liable to be influenced by that. Uh, and I think that's what we need, we, we, we've got to get back. We, that's what has to be done uh, vis-a-vis Scotland. The, the other big thing, I keep asking people this question, I've never... Nobody's given a clear answer to me. Why, after the second referendum uh, in Quebec, why was there never a third? The first one, the separatists were defeated by a very large margin. Mm-hmm. The second one, the separatists were defeated by 1%. Yes, they're very tight. Why was there not a third? After just coming within 1%, the uh, Parti Quebecois gives up. Why? Yes. <laughs> you could answer your own question. I do not know the answer. <laughs> I keep asking people. Imagine that, yeah. And the, the nearest I got to an answer is that in the discussions that took place post the second, uh, and they had, I think, some commissions, uh, and certainly uh, government put its thinking cap on and addressed this issue and all the rest of it, but in, in the discussions post it, 
uh, somehow the message got through to people in, in Quebec, we really want you to stay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, the, um, how do you respond to the charge um, that um, key moments between 98 and 2003, you, some people thought you put the process, the integrity of the process before your party? Like you, you accepted that the party losing votes and, and the MLAs was a, was a price that was in the long term worth paying. No, I, I just I, very very cross with the people who were responsible for that, and they were the uh, uh, the as it were the internal opposition, mm-hmm. who uh, were working in cohorts with the DUP mm-hmm. to bring that about, uh, and people who had they been, you know positively working to support the party which they were a member of and mm-hmm. that we would not have been in that situation. I did make mistakes. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, I'm accepting you know, the same because... I, I, did, I did make mistakes. I, I should not have been so uh, ready to uh, let uh, uh, Ken McGuinness and, and uh, John Taylor retire. Mm-hmm. They should have, I should have kept them in to fight uh, the, uh, that election. They would have held their seats. Mm-hmm. Um, that, they would have held their seats and that would have been a very different situation afterwards. Did you feel a sense of um, not just with the party itself but a sense of personal betrayal of people who you would have expected who had been you know, in the party and suppose, as you say members of the party that it was they you know, for all the talk about the damage you did to the party it was really them that did it and yes. in the same way you said the DUP have never been honest about where they are now that there are people in the Ulster Unionist Party who either drifted out altogether and remained critical or drifted to the DUP yeah. who are in precisely the same position that yeah. they have never been able yeah. to face their truth and it was they who did the damage to the party and I, it's infuriating but there's no point uh, getting involved with you know um, letting off steam against them or all the rest of it uh, to a large extent, what they did was a reflection of what was actually honestly in their minds, mm-hmm. uh, and they they became clear as to what sort of a person they they then they, they were. Yeah. How do you feel sometimes when you you must see some of them on um, television, um, in the, who are now MLAs for the DUP, um, talking about the success of what they have done. And yet, as it seems, it's just there's an unwillingness to work together. And yet, those very same people would turn, still on turn, you say, "Well, of course, this is not our problem. It's David Trimble's problem. He got us into the mess. We are dealing with his legacy." That must make you angry. Well, uh, yes, but I, I, again, I have no intention of getting involved. Oh, I don't want to say, but they still must, uh, must have a rankle. Well, look, it's, it's a reflection on their character, their mm-hmm. intelligence, and their character. That's that's what I can say. With that. Uh, some of them are intelligent enough people, and, and so it's perfection on their character. Uh, but unfortunately, as I said earlier, uh, there are deeper pools of, of bigotry in this country, of, of, of political prejudice here, uh, than I had taken account of. I, did, that, did that shock you? I mean, you said that to me earlier, that you were surprised, took in the middle class, that there was that element. Well, I presume you were talking about members of your own party at that time. Did, did, did that shock you? That that was well, still no, there? it's... Because you were the moderate leader of the moderate party. Yeah, but you got, well, there, there's, there's, there was one special case uh, who proceeded to blame me for things that I never did or I never had, <laughs> had absolutely no control over whatsoever. No, they were they were looking for a scapegoat, uh, but it, again, it's a reflection on the the, 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 the character. 
people so, who did who. Is that one of the reasons you again you said about you you, you you keep a distance? Is that one of the reasons you keep a distance? Because you, if you got up too close and personal and observed too minutely, you might there might be a bitterness and resentment which would just fester there. Well, I, I will go through television. I do. One of the reasons why I don't watch television is uh, a suspicion that there are times I would throw something at it. Ah, there's something. <laughs> okay, final question then. Do, do, do you think history will be kind to you when this, where people are writing 50, 100 years, whatever happens in Northern Ireland when they write about it? This is a key period. This reminds me of the conversation between Paul Bew and other Jonathan Phillips. Bew saying, history will not be kind to... Uh, our, our Glaswegian Secretary of State that we had. John Breed, Phyllis Rice. Yes, but that's because you're going to write the history. That's very true. That's a nice point to leave it. David Trimble, thank you very much. When you get an Irish independent digital subscription, you don't just get access to the news at your fingertips. For a limited time, you'll also receive a €75 O'Neill's gift card. So what are you waiting for? Get the whole kit and caboodle. Visit independent.ie forward slash subscribe today. Irish independent. Terms and conditions apply.